Well, we have reached the end of our Titus series, going through the letter that Paul wrote to Titus while he was doing church planting and leadership development stuff on the island of Crete. And uh, so uh, it has been uh, informational for me, I know, and study, and I hope that God has has opened uh, all of our eyes to the truth of his word and ways that we can apply that. Uh, so we're grateful that we can... Uh, we can dig into what God's Word together. So we're in the last week of this, and uh, next week I want to let you know that uh, uh, a good friend of ours, uh, maybe some of you have met him, maybe you have not, but Paul Clawitter, who's been doing uh, missions in France for well over 30 years, is going to be here with us next Sunday sharing the Word, and uh, he's going to talk to us about who disciples are, what disciples are, what does the Word of God say about that. And then he's going to meet with our community group next uh, Sunday at our house that anyone's welcome to come and join us for lunch and just uh, follow up that conversation on disciples and disciple-making as we uh, gather at the house afterwards. So you don't want to miss that next week. He's a really powerful speaker, very wise. Uh, He comes in twice a year and just works with leaders throughout the network and, and helps us think through things that maybe we're not seeing. And so we're excited about the time we have with him, and, uh, and we have him for uh, Sunday here. So we're really excited about that. Hopefully you can be here for that. And then the week after that, we're going to start a series, whether you can believe this or not. The week after that, we're going to start a series that builds us up to Christmas. And, uh, and so uh, we're going to start looking at the different characters, the people in Scripture that were used by God to build up to this promise that was given uh, and, uh, and the promise that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So hopefully in the weeks building up to Christmas, we can use our time together in here to really build each other up and to see what's in the Word and how we can get our hearts ready for this Christmas. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's where we've been. That's where we're headed. And, uh, but today, our present, uh, I just want to dig into the last part of what Paul says in this letter to Titus. But last week, Dwayne did an outstanding job of leading us through Titus 3, uh, 3 through 8. The whole emphasis of that section of Paul's letter to Titus is to reinforce the gospel. Paul does such a good job of reminding the reader of the letter who we are without Jesus and then who we are with him. And, And that's really what the sermon was last week. Dwayne did a great job of bringing up uh, the, the truth and the reality of who we are without Jesus and then who we are with Him. If you were here last week and got to listen to that, the, the pros and cons list, uh, and how really at the end of the day we have nothing in our pros category that God could look at to say uh, that we're worthy of this gift of the gospel. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I'd, I'd highly recommend get on the website and give that one a listen this week. It'll help fill in any of the gaps that maybe you missed uh, over the past couple, maybe. So uh, if you want to turn with me to Titus 3, we're going to be around, it's on page 690. We're going to close out the rest of this letter that Paul writes to Titus. And uh, 690 in the Bible, it's in front of you. I don't know what page it is in your Bible, but, uh, but 690 of the, of the Bible in front of you, we're going to look at Titus Chapter 3. Now, Titus, I think if you're using the Bible in front of you, only takes up one page uh, in, that, in that. But there's a whole lot of substance there that's better uh, than what we might think when we see just a one-page thing. But we need to remember, before we go any further, who Paul's writing to here. He's writing to Titus, who is living in the island, on the island of Crete. 
and uh, listen to what is said about the people who live in Crete. Paul says in, in chapter 1, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, a highly uh, influential leader of their own, a, a, a Cretan himself, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul finishes that up in verse 13 by saying, this testimony is true. That's what, we, that's what Paul is, is writing to. I think it's important for us to put ourselves in the understanding of who Titus is ministering to and where Titus is ministering and how the, the whole scope and theme and wording and how all the letter gets put together, why that matters for us to know that. Because where Titus is doing ministry is not an easy place to do ministry. And yet, the gospel is doing its work. People are coming to know Christ, and in their coming to know Christ, they are gathering together in groups. They are gathering together as churches, and they need leaders. And so he, he figures this out. He sees this, but Paul's on his way to the next place to start a new foundation. So he's tasking Titus with building up what remains unfinished. Finish this foundation, the last piece to getting the church really poised for where it needs to be and to head where it needs to head is that we need to have people in the conversation as these churches gather that's leading them more in gospel truth. So the whole thing is just really, this is what you look for in leaders. He's letting any of the followers of Jesus, he, he's, basically what he's saying in last, in last week's section is he's not letting any of the followers of Jesus believe for one second that any time in the timeline of your life have you ever been any better than the Cretans without Jesus. He, he's not leaving us any room to believe that without Jesus we'd be any better off than the Cretans. There's no morality scale where Paul's saying, okay, listen, if you follow this amount of rules, then you're in, the, you're in the C group, and if you follow this amount, then you're in the B group, but if you follow this amount, you're in the A group. When I was in uh, basic training for the military, I, whether you realize this or not, this might come as a shock. I'm glad you're all sitting down, but I'm not much of a runner. I've often told people, if you see me running fast, you better watch for the angry bear behind me. But even then, I might not be running. I might just be like, you know what? I'm secure in my relationship with Jesus. Have your way, bear. I never liked running. I still don't. When I got there, they had an Alpha group, a Bravo group, a Charlie group, and a Delta group. And that, that level was how fast you could run and how much fitness you could endure. Now, I wanted to be in the D group so badly, but they made me run in the B group at first, and then eventually after about a week, they made me run in the A group, and I felt like I was going to die. But they did that because there were levels of competency in your ability to do what they were asking you to do. The danger in the church today is that I think we, we do the same things in the church as far as obedience to the Word of God. We tend to put ourselves in competency categories to say, well, I'm not competent enough to believe the Word of God wholly, but, uh, so I'll be happy being in the C group or the B group, but I'm not an A group guy. Uh, the A group guys are guys like, you know, I mean, Dwayne get up here and preach last week. He's an A group guy. I'm, I'm, more, of like a, I'm more of like a Charlie group guy, right? Like, I, I'm going to come in. I'm going to drink the coffee. I don't want anyone to talk to me. I just want to hear it and then get out, right? I'm more of a Charlie group guy. But that's not how it works. And Paul really leaves no room for us to interpret it that way, especially last week. 
in the passage that Dwayne walked us through. Look at verse uh, chapter 3, verse 3. He, he says, For we ourselves, he's talking to people who know Christ, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Pretty nice picture, right? Now, if you pair that, that description in in verse 3 of chapter 3 with verse 12 of chapter 1, don't they sort of tie together? Let's read again, verse 12 of chapter 1. It says that one of the Cretans himself said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now look at verse 3 of chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. It actually makes us sound worse, doesn't it? And that's the picture that he paints. It's a good news, bad news scenario, right? Have you ever had one of those moments? The car mechanic comes out and says, I got good news and I got bad news. Or give me the bad news first. Your car's terrible. The good news is you could probably find a cheap one, right? Like, uh, this is a good news, bad news scenario. This isn't just a, uh, a, a moment where Paul is saying, it's all good news, it's all good news. No, I think for us to have a proper understanding of the good news, we have to know how bad it was first. So Paul's, Paul's reminding the reader, he's reminding Titus, as you equip the church, this is what you need to see. The bad news needs retold to us over and over again so that the good news and the truth of the gospel shines through all the more. Now, we don't need to be gloom and doom. We don't always need to, need to say, well, I'm such a terrible person. That's self-deprecation. That's different. But we do need to remember who we are without Jesus so that we can see who we are with him. Look at verse 3, 4 through the first part of verse 8. So after this description of us without Jesus, listen to what Paul says then in verse 4, and this is what Dwayne covered last week. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. Some versions say this, this, this saying is, this teaching is trustworthy and, and true and noble. It, it, it's just, we're only good because of an active choice by God on our behalf. There's only good in us. We're only capable of good things. We're only capable of eternally good things because God made an active choice to step into our story and redeem us from the mess that we're described as in verse 3. So for this all to make sense today, coming out of last week, coming out of the whole series, let's read real quick. There's 15 verses in the last chapter. I want to read them all together so that you can sort of piece this together. Now, when Dwayne preached last week, he preached through verses 3 through 8, and it looks like we kind of skipped over 1 and 2, but we didn't. We're going to look at 1 and 2 because contextually, it kind of makes sense to go from 1 to 2 and then into the second part of verse 8. You'll see why here in a little bit, hopefully. 
But just follow along here. Verse uh, 1, chapter 3, we're going to read through to the end. This is the last letter. This is the last part of the letter. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Man, I read those things and I think, man, Paul really knew how to write a letter, didn't he? So that's where, we're le- that's, that's, that's where we left off last week, is thinking through that piece where what we were without Jesus and what we are in him. And what we're to commit ourselves to is what Paul ends the thought with. A strong and concise verbal reminder of the gospel is what we got last week. A strong and concise verbal reminder of the gospel. But look at how the second part of verse 8 is constructed. The first part that says this saying is trustworthy. Then it goes on to say, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This isn't just so we know it. It's not just so the church knows this truth. That's not why the letter's written, and that's not why leaders need put in leadership positions. It's not just to make sure that when people gather under trees or in homes or with families or whatever, that there's someone there to make sure that the conversation stays focused on truth, although that is vitally important. But listen to how he says this. He says, insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to what? Devote themselves to good works. Can good works happen if the church stays in one spot for 90 minutes a week and doesn't do anything else? No. Can can good works happen if the main focal point of the church is to gather and be taught and that's it? No. So there's an activeness to the gospel. 
Paul's saying that it's not just so that you know it. Last week, that's what that section was about, a concise verbal testimony of what we have in the gospel and what we've been redeemed from. It's vitally important that we know it. It's vitally important. But it's even as important that we take that information that we know and let it change the way that we live, change the way that we treat people, change our motivations behind what we do with our money and where we go and who we spend time with and why. So let's remember what Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35. I don't really have the page number for you, but this is what he says. He's sitting with his disciples and he says this, a new command I give you, love one another. Some of you heard me say this before, but I I tend to put myself in the position of the disciples in this moment. And and I'm thinking in that moment, they, they might be thinking, this isn't anything new, Jesus. Love one another is not a new commandment. Actually, Moses got that one from you a long, long time ago. So loving one another, that's not new. And Jesus says, but there's a caveat here. Yes, a new command I give to you, love one another. And then he goes on to say, just as I have loved you, You must love one another. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, by how you love one another. Not just love each other and be kind to one another, but how did Jesus do it? And that had to be the question that had to be asked and had to be answered by the disciples for the church to get to us. For the gospel to move forward and churches to get planted by Paul and all these other leaders, the question had to be asked, not just how do I love my neighbor, but how did Jesus do it? Jesus' love for people was very active, am I right? Jesus didn't just gather a group, teach, and then go back to his office for the rest of the week, did he? Jesus didn't just speak on a podcast and hope that people would get it. Jesus had an active role in the lives of the people that he was called to lead. And later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is how Paul describes him. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. By the humility and gentleness of Christ. Now, why would Paul say it that way? Why would Paul instruct his people to interact with people like that? Because we're supposed to treat people the way Jesus treated people. Look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 of chapter 3 says that, that we should speak evil of no one. We should avoid quarreling. We should be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Show perfect courtesy to all people. It's translated to be all gentleness to all people. That's how it translates in out of the Greek. To be all gentleness to all people. So what that means is that this is a way of life we're grafted into because of the gospel. And it's for all people, and it's for all of life. So we don't slander. We don't quarrel. We are to be peaceable people. We're to be considerate. We're to be gentle. Why? Not because that stuff comes natural to us, but because the gospel has changed the way I view my neighbor, the way I interact with the people around me. Now, verse 3 reminds us, again, that we were... Uh, all foolish. 
We, we live in a world that is negative, polarized, angry, foolish, disobedient, enslaved, living in envy, hating others, being hated, etc. If you don't believe that, just watch the news. I can't wait for election season to be over. It's just all of this comes out. It's just the worst of humanity comes out in a season like this. In our, in our, and, and that's the world that we live in. Now, that wasn't a political statement. That's just a, a litmus test of where we're at as a society. That's where we live. So it is pretty tempting to pull ourselves out of that world or look down on that world. We can find ourselves, we, we can find people who don't think like us scary and intimidating. We can find it way more comfortable to spend all our time with people who think and live like we do. We can swap stories with those like-minded people about how bad the world is, quote-unquote, out there. But Paul is reminding us over and over and over again that what you, but you used to be like that too. And I have a feeling that if we had a conversation, if one of us had a conversation with Paul and said, like, man, this world's really nasty. Like, I saw this the other day and it really threw me. Or, I can't believe this person over here does that. Or, I can't believe they've chosen to live like that. Or, how dare they make those kind of decisions? I would never do that. And if we were to have a conversation like that with Paul, Paul would look back at us and say, hey, oh, slow down. You used to be the exact same way. Without Jesus, you're, you're worse than that. You're at, at best the same. Paul himself called himself the chief of all sinners. Paul did that. He understood the gospel in a way that, that, that led him to see that there was really no spot or room in his life to say that he was better than anybody else. It's only by grace, Paul would say, I think, that it's only by grace that you've been saved and it's the only by grace that keeps you from being entrenched in sinful activity or sinful decisions. It's only by grace that keeps you from living a, a, a derelict lifestyle like the rest of the people in Crete may or may not be doing. So we really don't have any basis for smug or, or superior mindset because that used to be us. Now the problem is that sometimes we can say, well, that wasn't me. I got saved when I was seven years old. I mean, I don't really remember not being a Christian, right? So some of us can hold, hang our hat on that and say, I was raised in a Christian home. I, I was raised in, a, in an atmosphere where Christ was exalted. I never did live like that. But that doesn't change the reality of who we are without Christ. Maybe sin didn't manifest itself in you before Jesus the way that it manifests itself in your neighbor. But sin is all ugly, and sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Sin is what separated us from God in the first place. Sin did. And so we needed an atoning sacrifice to step in. Now, I want to stop for a second and just look. Well, let's just keep going here before we, before we go into that. Because I think an argument uh, that we can tend to make is, I tried... I tried to live life in that, in that world. I, I tried to be uh, a witness to that neighbor, to that person. I, I tried to step into their, their world, but all I got was villainized. I got, I got talked down to. I got yelled at. I got, I got painted as the villain. I got treated poorly. 
Well, now what? We ground ourselves around the truth that that ones who don't believe the gospel that are treating us the way that they are, we used to be just like that. We need to remind ourselves of that truth, that without the gospel, we're all a mess. We cannot say, I want to keep myself pure, so I need to keep myself away. We cannot say that I want to protect my family, so I'm going to keep them out of the world. We cannot say that I, I'm going I'm, I'm to make sure that we shelter this thing up and bottle it up and keep the world from infecting because if that was the, if that was the stance we were supposed to take, then that would, re, that would reflect our Creator. That would reflect God. And if God had that mindset, then why in the world would He ever send His perfect Son to this world to live for over 30 years? If we're supposed to shelter ourselves from the world and shelter ourselves from sin and make sure that it never makes its way into the camp, how does that reflect God? How does that reflect the active decisions that God made himself? When he looked at his son in glory, I have no idea how that conversation went. But when he looks at his son in glory and says, it's time, son. And Jesus has to step down from a throne in a perfect existence, step away from angelic beings and a perfect world, a perfect existence in eternity with his Father. He needs to step down from that and not just come to earth as a person, but come to earth as a baby who's going to get cared for and raised by sinful human beings and be surrounded by that his whole life. Be surrounded by treacherous leaders who don't have his best interest in mind. Matter of fact, they want to see him dead. To be surrounded by people who are wretched sinners, people who who are uh, alcoholics and and addicts and sex addicts and into uh, demon worship and all of the things that Jesus witnessed and endured. Do you think he only saw that stuff when he was an adult? Do we think that Jesus only saw sin whenever he he stepped into ministry? He was around it his whole life. And it was a new experience for him because he had spent every minute, if, if minutes exist in heaven, because God has always existed. That means Jesus has always existed. And from the time human beings were spoken into existence, Jesus had a perfect existence never sinned and never had to deal with the stuff of this world and definitely didn't have to get spit on, his beard pulled out in chunks and murdered by human beings for doing something he did not do. He did not have to step into that reality. And if we are to be the kind of people that step out away from sinners because we want to keep ourselves holy, I just have to say, according to what Paul is saying to Titus, that is not what works. That is not how the church grows. That is not how the gospel expands. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying to Titus, you live in a horrible place. Titus, you live in a horrible place. Crete is a horrible place. So many terrible things were happening around him, and never once does Paul say, Titus, you got to get out of there. If you don't get out of there, you're going to start sinning and looking like the Cretans. you got to stop spending time with them. 
Go to this neighboring city where the church is more prominent and things will be easier for you and you'll be treated better. Never once is that said. Actually, he's encouraged to stay. He's encouraged to stay. And Paul gives him a plan on how to make sure that other people that are like-minded to him can partner with him in advancing the gospel because that's the thing that matters most. All the way through this letter, Paul is saying that the church needs to live in a way that consistently commends Jesus. Older people investing in younger people. Be self-controlled. Look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 10. In the second part of it, he says, uh, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Before that, the whole part is about investing in one another, doing life with one another. Why? To what end? So that the church may be adorned with the grace and love of Jesus. And that one thing when lived out well, especially in community amongst other people, will be the thing that turns the tide on this nasty culture that you live in. But for them to see it, Titus, you have to be there. You have to get people there. You have to lead people there. You have to preach the word. You have to teach it. You have to live it. You have to be there with them. They're not going to watch your videos. They're not going to listen to your podcasts. But they will listen to you if you're there living with them. says in the, at the end of this letter, in verse 15, Paul says, grace be with you all. This way of life is, is specifically being told to Titus to reinforce with church leaders. But then at the very end of the letter, Paul drops this bomb on us. It says, if you have the gospel, this way of life is for you too. He's not just saying that this is only for leaders in the church. He's saying that if you have the gospel, this is for you too. Look at what he says in verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, how do we learn Think of that for yourself. How do you learn? And I know there's different learning styles. I know there's different ways that we can each learn different things, but, but they all can be funneled down into a couple of things. You learn by seeing, you learn by doing, you learn by hearing, right? When Isaiah was little, he, uh, he accidentally, well, it wasn't an accident, he never did it again, but he reached up and put his hand on the hot stove. And he got blisters all over his palm and he, was, he burnt his hand. So he had to learn from experience, right? None of our other kids have done that. We've tried to be vigilant, and, and they've actually heeded the warnings. They've learned from listening. They've learned from seeing that it is hot. But Isaiah learned that through experience. So we all learn different ways. But at the end of the day, we're all called to learn to what? Learn to devote ourselves to good works. Now, that's another word I want us to camp out on for a second. What does it mean to devote yourself to something? What, what does that mean to you? You don't have to answer that out loud, but what does that mean to you to devote yourselves to something? 
there are people that devote themselves to a certain kind of healthy living and a healthy lifestyle. So when they say they're devoted to it, they eat certain things, they don't eat certain things. And they don't waver from that because they've devoted themselves to it. There are people that have devoted themselves to a certain uh, a job that they have, and they just will not stop. They will not quit because they've devoted themselves to it. There are people that are like that with fitness. There are people, there's examples all over the place, right? When you devote yourself to something, there doesn't leave any room in the word devotion for an interpretation that says half-hearted commitment, is there? Like when you look at someone and say, wow, they're really devoted to that, does that mean that you see them do that thing once or twice a year? Last Monday, I uh, rode my bike to work. And so I rode my bike from, from my house to here, and then whenever I got here, I put it on my bike rack on the car. That's, if, you, if you had a logbook of every day my car is in this parking lot, you could probably get about four days in a calendar year where the bike is on the roof of my car, equating that I rode the bike to work, right? Now, if you were to see all of those, would you come to the conclusion that Adam Johnson is devoted to cycling? No. The evidence doesn't support it, does it? The evidence doesn't support it. Dwayne mentioned last week in his sermon about people who have gone to disprove God only to be led in the end to find that the gospel was true. They, they worked tirelessly to disprove this truth only at the end to have the opposite effect. And one of those people is Josh McDowell. If you've ever heard of Josh McDowell, he's a Christian apologist. He's a really good educator at just taking down the arguments against God and against the church. And he wrote a book, his first book, this book came out of him doing research to disprove God and it ended up being a whole flip the script because this book is called Evidence Demands a Verdict. And in it is just all of the defenses, all the premises that he went into to disprove God and then the only things that he could find were things that actually proved that God existed and he was led to Christ through that. But his whole premise was evidence demands a verdict. And when he went into this, he said that if I gather up the evidence of what the claims of God are, I will be able to disprove that God exists because evidence demands a verdict. You don't just pile evidence in front of you and say, meh. You pile evidence in front of you to lead you to make a decision about what is in front of you, right? And he piled up all of these arguments against God only to be led to the point where he realized that all those arguments were bunk. And he could claim that God existed and it led him to Christ. Now let's look at our lives. If, if Paul's prayer and Paul's hope for the church in Crete and because centuries have passed and we have this letter available to us and he's writing it to us because he drops that bomb at the end that says, Grace be with you all. This letter is for anyone who reads it. If you understand the gospel, if you are living in the reality of that truth, then Paul is saying that we need to let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. When I was a teenager, the age-old question we get asked was, if you were arrested for following and loving Jesus, would there be enough evidence to put you in jail? 
if you were arrested and they gathered up all the evidence of your life as to how you have lived, the decisions you make and why you make them, they'd look at your bank account, they'd look at your stuff, they'd look at everything that makes up who you are and they'd put it on a table in front of a jury and said, this person, we need to know whether based on the evidences in front of you, this person loves Jesus or does not. That was the question that I always got asked. I got it asked several times whenever I was in youth group, and it's sort of a haunting question. There's some breakdown in the premise of that question. It's not all completely accurate. But if there was evidence to show your life, would it lead not to the fact that you love Jesus, but that you're devoted to good works because of the gospel? Are you devoted to it? If the evidence came up against you, would it see more of verse 14 that you're devoted to good works? That you see that there are cases of urgent need and you help with them, that you, you strive to be fruitful because of who you know you are in Christ and how, what Christ has redeemed you from? Or would there be evidence to support what he's saying in verse 9? Avoid foolish controversies. Don't speak on genealogies. You see, it made, a big, it made a lot of sense back then to them to say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I deserve this because I'm from this family or I have this genealogy. That was a big claim to them. Avoid dissensions. Avoid quarrels about the law. Why? Because they're unprofitable and they're worthless. Don't stir up division. If you stir up division, you should be warned by someone in the church not to do it. And twice, and if after the second time, you should just be left alone. You already condemned yourself, Paul says. They're warped. They're sinful. And obviously, if you've talked to them twice and they're not going to get it after two conversations of pointing them back to truth, then let them be them. Don't let that slow you down, he says. What should you do instead? You should learn to devote yourself to good works so you can help the cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. He says that we should take this truth of the gospel and insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He says that in verse 8. He says it again in verse 14. Paul doesn't emphasize things because he forgot that he said it before. He emphasizes things because it deeply matters to manifesting the gospel in the culture that you were in. You know, when Paul wrote this letter, I believe that there wasn't even a hint in his mind that people would gather, call themselves the church, and then after 90 minutes or so together, they'd have themselves convinced that that was all that was required of them to be the church. I don't see any evidence to support that Paul believed that or that ever thought that would be a possibility of the church. He saw that as a possibility of, of the, uh, the Pharisees and the Judaizers, who, by the way, is who he's referring to in verse 9. If you go back to verse 2 or chapter 2, when he's talking about, or it's at the tail end of chapter 1 actually, the people who are uh, stirring up dissension and, and especially the circumcision party, if you remember that part, the people that he's referring to there are the exact same people he's referring to in chapter 2 or chapter 3, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. 
If someone's stirring up dissension, you should sit them down, have a conversation with them once, and then twice. And then after that, you just let them be them. They're warped. They're sinful. They're self-condemned. Paul says, don't waste your time trying to convince someone who's living out the gospel poorly if they don't want to hear it. Call them out. Meet with them. Talk with them. Do that at least twice. If that doesn't work and it doesn't change anything, then focus on the ones that are hungry for it and invest your time in them. And then we will see people devoted to the good works. It's not works for the sake of earning salvation. It's good works because you already have received it. And I believe that the only way that we can do that collectively, the only way that we can do that together under one roof, as a group of people, as the church, the only way we can do that is by understanding the bad news first, receiving the good news, and then living out of that. And always staying grounded in the fact of what we are without Jesus. Who we are without Jesus. And why is that important? So my question is this, how will the gospel motivate you to live productively this week? How will the gospel motivate you? How will the gospel motivate me to live productively the second we walk outside these doors? Not just doing good works for the sake of doing good works or feeling some sense of obligation that since we're a Christian, we have to do nice things for each other, but being completely driven by the reality that we have been redeemed from the pit of sin, these choices that we've made, these sinful decisions, this laziness, the slothfulness, the addictions, the whatever you want to call it, that we have been redeemed from that because that's who we are without Jesus. We are wretched. We are, if you remember a few weeks ago, scubala, without Jesus. And then we have this amazing gift of Jesus that he came down into this world. He came down and lived his life amongst sinners. And then he saw the worst of humanity and he died for us anyway. And that gift is afforded to us. And we get to step outside the doors and live in the light of that eternal gift that we've, been received, we've received. And we get to repent of sin, not because the people next to us made us feel guilty, but because the, the, the blood of Jesus was shed to conquer that sin. And we don't want to ever act like it was wasted. We want the world to be transformed. And the only way for the world to be transformed for the truth of the gospel is for them to see it, for them to experience it, for them to learn it for us to be devoted to good works where we live, who we work with, who we rub shoulders with, who we see, and where we're at. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you look around the room, the 53,000 people that live within the reach of this church are not here today. But you know where they are? The same places we'll be as soon as we leave this place and lock the doors. They'll be outside. So if we believe this gospel, if it's really transformed the way we think, that'll be the priority. And this won't. Me, myself. I will have the heart of John the Baptist who when, he, when his followers were starting to leave his camp 
and going to follow Jesus. People were like, whoa, John, you're leaving followers and people are leaving you in droves to follow this Jesus guy. And he looks back at them and says, Jesus must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. My job was to point people to Jesus and he's right there. You should go too. That was John the Baptist's attitude. And I think that's the one that we need to adopt to be able to devote ourselves to good works, for us to be devoted to the truth and reality of the gospel, for us to see in a dark place like where we live, like where Titus lived, to see the gospel further, we're going to need to take it seriously ourselves. And that's my prayer. The song we're going to sing to close today has these lyrics in it. It says, how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Listen to this. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. It doesn't say that in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. And then through judgment and anger and through scare tactics, you brought me into salvation. It says through your loving kindness. Your loving kindness through, tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. God, we are messy people, every one of us. We all this morning carried in our own mess. Sin manifests itself in so many ways, it's impossible to track it at times. We tend to want to be people that, that can look to the left or the right, but I pray that you can keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, that we can look to you, look to who you are, compare ourselves to that and know that we pale in comparison to your holiness. And then, in our collective understanding of how messy we are without grace, we receive grace and then together step out into the world where the people are that don't know you and live it in such a way and speak it in such a way that people want that truth and realize their brokenness. Lord, that they would see the people we come in contact with, those of us in this room that maybe haven't seen it yet, we've seen this chasm that stands between us. We've seen this mountain in front of us that we can't climb. We're up against it. And in our desperation, we turn to you and we speak your name into the night. And then through that same darkness, your loving kindness tears through all the shadows. You remind us in that moment that the work is finished. The end is written that you are alive, you are living, you are active, and you are our own.